How are you? I'm perfect as usual. How are you? Hello and welcome to Listen Carefully. I'm your host, Nathan Jolly, and my guest today is Lydia Lunch. You have an insanely large discography. Surprising, I know. How do you know what to choose from when compiling a live set? Well, I mean, look, I'm coming to Australia with spoken word, so I have an incredible amount of writing also, but I've narrowed it down to a certain specificity. With the, I mean, the, the beauty about having retrovirus, which we, I did bring to Australia a few times, was that we could choose and pick which what made sense while still going through this ridiculously large catalog. And there's also the film screening at at least one of your shows. What's it like having a film about your entire life? And like, oh, well, wait a second, entire life? <laughs> well, that's a bit hard. A mere glimpse into some of what I've done. How much can you squeeze into 65 minutes? Let's be serious. Uh, before I even started The War Is Never Over with Beth B, I'm like, what about part two? <laughs> can't get it all in. Although I think she did an amazing job because you can get it all in. No, exactly. But she got in the philosophy of my existence, which is important. And what then leads to the type of work that I do. So that's the most important thing. And are you self-critical when you look back at your old work? Fuck no. Good. <laughs> critical? I'm critical of everything outside of myself. Uh, what's interesting to me is when I look back, especially about my political monologues pre-internet, I could just go cut, paste. I'm like, how did I even know all that shit? Because it's the same as it ever was. And this is what I truly believe. This is what one of my mantras. This is the problem. People are like, oh, is it better now? Is it worse now? I'm like, you know what? How was it in the Middle Ages? How was it in the 1700s, 1950s? In a sense, it is the same as it ever was. Because we are still ruled by stupid men who are greedy, manipulative, and violent. Eh, same as it well. Once the women lost the world, the Bronze Age, it's the same as it's ever been. So with that in mind, are you hopeful or are you just kind of accepting? Oh, yeah. Oh, let me just quote Kafka. There is hope, but not for us. I am an absolutely <laughs> optimistic nihilist um, because of that very fact that I just said. As an apocalyptician, in some ways, I'm laughing at the mouth of the volcano. I'm like, you fucking idiots. We've come this far in history, in technology, and we're still waging. At this moment, there are 174 out of uh, 196 countries in conflict. What the heck? Come on. You know, to me, that's just ridiculous. Hopeful. I'm hopeful for the individual. I'm hopeful. And the thing is, why am I the warmonger? War does not affect my life personally, really. I feel like I became the voice of what, every refugee on the planet, of all the wars that are being waged? Well, I know that a lot of them are, you know, American exports, but I don't know why that became my duty and still is, although mainly in Australia I'll be talking about the battle of sex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you mentioned, the follies, follies of such. You mentioned in your film that you kind of, you know, came of age when the race riots and also protest music was coming up. So how much has that shaped that, that early kind of exposure? Thank you very much, because in a sense, that was the war on my block. So there you go. That The race riot protests, which happened in a lot of American countries at that time, rightfully so. Surprised they're not happening every day in every country, everywhere, always. 
uh, I'm just one woman. All I can do is shout into the microphone. <laughs> yes, it was very inspirational to me because I'm like, this shit is wrong. <laughs> I mean, and the sense of what is wrong is why I opened my mouth in the first place. I mean, you know, I'm not the one who's going to be talking about the shit that's right. Go listen to a fucking pop song. I need to focus on the issues that are repetitive, obsessive, heartbreaking, and ridiculous. I mean, that's, should that be my tombstone? Well, I haven't died yet. Maybe I won't. I don't know. What made you initially do that through music? Was it because of all the protest music when you were growing up? Well, interesting because, I mean, you can consider Teenage Jesus and the Jerks a protest against all music and everything else. It was really a temper tantrum designed by, you know, a babyface killer. But uh, I can't, I, it's not in my music that that was so reflected, except for the rebellion against tradition or even doing more traditional styles of music and re-inhabiting them, swamp rock, hard rock, uh, blues rock, uh, psychoambient, whatever, all the different uh, genres I've gone through. But it was, and the thing is, I wanted to at first be spoken word artist, but there was, it didn't exist at that moment because past, past the beat poets and Patti Smith rock poetry, it's like, uh, no, I, no. So I had to start, with a band that was half instrumental because I needed to talk about things and had to start curating my own shows. But spoken word has always been my priority. And again, maybe it was, maybe I was uh, baptized by fire by the race riots. Like, I'm on their side. How do you kind of, because you said spoken word is what you focus on, is that something that you write a whole bunch of material and then whittle it down? Or is it something oh, where oh, you... Oh, 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 stop right there. That's already too many sentences. First of all, <laughs> I don't have volumes of unpublished or unutilized material. No. We have so much published stuff. I'm very specific in what I do, when I do it, what needs to be said. I don't sit around doodling. I'm not a, like a, a neurotic doodler. I don't like write to write. When there is an issue that must be addressed, then I attack it. And the same with music. I mean, I guess, of course, I'm prolific, but the thing is, I have a concept to find the collaborators. When that's necessary, I do it. I mean, I think, look, I've only written 400 songs in 47 years. I must be slacking. <laughs> right. Is that really how you feel about it, though? No, I don't feel that way at no, all. No, good. Like, I did a lot of other shit, too, whatever. You did. And look, yeah. it, it isn't a competition here. You know, it's I do what I do when it needs to be done. Quite simply that. I don't. I don't think, oh, I need to do more. And I do know some artists that if they're not busy working on something, they, they just don't feel they're alive. That's not true. I need to live life. I need to experience things because that's how I create my spoken word and my music. I need to watch a lot of, you know, I need to binge watch sometimes. I need to binge read, sometimes even binge drink, just occasionally. <laughs> I can confide that to the Australians because they know what I'm talking about. Occasionally. Yeah, well, you have a good kind of working relationship with Australians. Being an Australian, I obviously love your stuff with Roland. How did you start working with him? Did you know him before you started working with him? Roland and and uh, and JG Thorowell, who I lived with for seven years and did yeah. a lot of recordings with that, and performances with. Um, I was into the birthday party. I was living in California. I went to New York. There was their first show there. I was one of the few people there. I went up to Roland and I said, amazing. I was amazed he knew my work. He knew Teenage Jesus, Queen of Siam, and he said, we need to do some Velvet Morning. Nobody at that time really knew about Lee Hazelwood. I did. He did. And I'm like, I'm coming to London, and we're going to work together. Hello. 
basically, I just said, close up my apartment in L.A. I'm going to work with Portland. And, and so, you know, we started with the EP, uh, Some Velvet Morning, I Fell in Love with a Ghost, really beautiful. And then we did an album that was lost for eight years, Honeymoon in Red, and then found, and which I had to reconfigure. And then I moved to New Orleans many years later. And I thought, this is the place to do an album with, with Roland. And it was. That's such a great record, that one, the um, Shotgun Wedding album. Thank you very much. And great tour and great experience. I mean, I, I loved Roland dearly uh, because he was hilarious. He was so intelligent. He was so romantic and also very sensitive. And what's interesting is people say, I've worked with a lot of sensitive men. They're never afraid of me. Yeah. Sensitive and shy guys are not afraid. Why should they be? I'm like kind of their protector in a way. I'm going after the assholes, not for the <laughs> shy and sensitive types. I'm like, come on in. Come on, boys. Got some work to do. What? Why was it? <laughs> Why was that Honeymoon in Red album lost for so long? Was it just he's had other stuff coming out? It, well, it was just law. I mean, we, re we recorded it in Berlin and that whatever, maybe the engineer left the studio, the studio. I have no idea. But then somehow it came back to me years later. And I'm like, okay, now I have to sort of reconfigure it because I couldn't, you know, the same people were not, couldn't be found to be involved, didn't want to be involved. And, but there were great songs there. So hence reconfigured and finally out. Only eight years, no biggie, no biggie. Only eight years lost, whatever. Yeah. I know in a dog's life that's many years, but yeah. It's good that it was found. I'm very happy it was found. I'm very grateful for everything I did with Roland, all the tours, the music, just knowing him. And one of my favorite albums of all time is Teenage Snuff Film that he did. I mean, that's just a perfect LP. Yeah. And the stuff with Crime in the City Solution, These Immortal Souls. I mean, what I love most about Roland, and this is what more guitar players need to learn, is every note counted. And within, I'm giving you an example now, the same with spoken word, it's the pauses that have the power. And Roland knew that as a, as, as, you know, a musician. Most guitar players, they just play too damn much. He did not, he never played too much. It was the economy of sound, which is, very important. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think your early solo albums have that in it. They have like an economy of sound. They have like deliberate pauses. Well, and one, one, uh, one instrumental album I made with, uh, with a gal who was in my favorite No Wave band Mars called The Drowning of Lucy Hamilton, which is just bass, clarinet, two guitars and piano. I wanted to make a record that you forgot it was on and then it scared you when it started back up again. And speaking <laughs> about a pause, pauses are very important. And I think I learned that after my initial spoken word performances were on such a hysterical diatribe that then I'm like, wait, have to reconfigure this because it's just a, it's just too much of a sonic blast. It's just a matter of sophisticating the method, the meaning. And you mentioned Mars and suicide and you mentioned them also in that documentary, you say they were the kind of first bands that made you go, I want a band, I need a band. And I mean, they're very, they're very disparate from each other but yeah. in that, in that, and that is why no, which is why I still consider myself a no wave artist is because no wave was <laughs> within no wave. Nothing sounded like itself. When you mention any other form of music, usually you, there's a, there's a, a range of what it sounds like. There's sure, a yeah. vibe, a genre, a theme, and no wave. You could go from suicide, Mars, teenage Jesus, contortions, and none of them have anything. It would seem sonically, in uh, in relation to each other, but it was more philosophically 
<laughs> because we didn't give a shit. And I mean, I've been doing, I mean, it's great because I've been doing a tribute to suicide in all and quite a few shows in Europe. Ellen, suicide being my first friends in New York and being able to then, I started doing that when Ellen was sick for one show in Europe. I was living there. So I was asked to stand in for him. And I'm like, ha, ha, stand in for him. I'm going to take his place. Because who else? Because I had already been doing Frankie Teardrop for years. So yeah. it's like it only made sense. And it's not only such a grand tribute, but it's a very freeing thing. Because what I do with that is, you know, have Ellen Vega have suicide songs. And in Ellen Vega songs, there's so much room. Speak about space to just say whatever I want. And a lot of the themes of the songs we chose are about war. So it's perfect for me. It's like I can get the ranting in <laughs> and, <laughs> and take it to another level sonically because of the technology at this at this moment. While we show films of Alan Vega and his artwork behind us. So that's, you know, that's just, and face it, nobody could ever cover Mars and I wouldn't do that anyway. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> my very favorite, one of my favorite bands of all times. Yeah, you noted kind of like a philosophical link between those no-wave bands. Was there a sense of that at the time, or is that more a retrospective thing? A sense of what? I suppose there being a scene, like coalescing. Where... Well, I mean, there was a scene because we were, you know, the gnarliest in a sense. We were the least affected by audience acceptance or participation. It was the most dissident. Yeah. It was just the most out there. Um, so... It, it, I mean, for instance, look, right before I, <laughs> I wanted to say shatter fall the seam, I mean, step up on the stage, same thing. <laughs> Groups like Richard Hell and the Voidites, who I adored, and, and Robert Quine became a very good friend and producer of mine. They were amazing, but it was still too traditional. And was this like mid-70s New York, like 75? Well, I mean, yeah, I think but the first time I might have seen Richard Hell was maybe 76 or 77. Seven, okay, yeah. But, I mean, and that, again, Richard Hell, the first Voidoids album is one of the greatest albums preceding No Wave. Yeah. Which has its, which is its own genre because it's very groovy. It's rock. It's, is it garage rock? No, it's not punk rock. Uh, it's something, it's its own genre. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. <laughs> I totally agree. Mr. <laughs> Jolly. <laughs> So what about Sonic Youth around that time? So Thurston Moore oh. loves you, talks about you a lot in his book. I love Thurston. Was the first thing you did with him the In Limbo record? Yeah. Now, the first thing I did was stalked him on the subway platforms because he lived one block away from me. So I'd always see this cute, tall, lanky boy, and I'm like, who the hell? Um, <laughs> he knew me. I didn't know him. But um, uh, I still love Thurston because he's, I'm not jaded. He's not jaded at all. He's still enthusiastic. He still wants to know what's going on out there. And I really respect that. I mean, a lot of people had to drop out from who were creating at that period because they couldn't take it. They were jaded. They had to get a day job. Whatever reason, I don't blame them. But uh, we carry, we sally forth, and we're not jaded. And he understands me like few others. And again, a shy, sweet, sensitive man boy. <laughs> he gets me, which is lovely to me oh how did death valley 69 come about that's one of the greatest songs ever by the way so well done i was living in spanish harlem i invited thurston to come up there we were taking the bus and we wrote the lyrics on a bus that's how it happened it's so good it's so dark and mansony and brave. well it is their best song other than she's in a bad mood which might have been about me anyway i don't know but sonic <laughs> youth at the time at their very 
maybe their second year out. I mean, their performances were amazing. This this sonic guitar tornadoes were just unbelievable. And I don't really think that was ever truly captured on record. How could it be? But it was it was phenomenal. How do you feel about the way your records are captured? Do you feel like they're accurate representations? I, I'm kind of amazed that, you know, I wouldn't have done them any differently. And the thing is, you know, let, let's from then to now. I mean, obviously, Queen of Siam was my most expensive because I had an orchestra for some of the songs, although you know, I wrote most of the songs. I had an orchestra. He did not like what we did. Bob Quine was on it. It was amazing. I would always go into the studio and I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And none of my records, other than Queen of Siam, took more than one or two days to record. Amazing. Because you go in knowing what you're going to do. And now with GarageBand, I mean, a lot of my recent recordings with Cypress Grove or various things, uh, it's just uh, transatlantic GarageBand right into the old Mac, sometimes with a mic, sometimes not. Quality is great. If you know what you're doing, it shouldn't take that long. And, you know, we're not using overdubs here. I mean, look, this is a very, we're using a very raw elemental. And so I think... There's no album I think, oh, that should have been done differently. That's great. That's good to hear. It was done as it should have been at the time because we knew what we were doing. I mean, the only thing I think that the thing that I think is the least representative was produced by Eno, which is the No New York recordings of Teenage Jesus. When Bob Quine produced it or nobody produced it, it was much more accurate to the sound. Yeah. And I imagine those Eno recordings are a lot of people's first introduction to you as well. Obviously. Yeah. Oh. Good, good enough, I guess, for who they're for. <laughs> um, Urge to Kill is a massive sounding album, really. Kind of, is that another one that you recorded via, like, you know, into the computer? Oh, so one day in the studio. Right. Yeah. And one day mixing. It's, a, it's got a great sound. Well, when, you know, playing the songs, it's, it's, it's rock music. It's not that. <laughs> Yeah, and I know you're touring spoken word at the moment, but um, do you have an album that you're kind of prepping at the moment? Well, I have a few albums that are not released. I have an album with Tim Dahl, who is the bass player of Retrovirus and the co-host of my podcast, The Lydian Spin, 235 episodes so far. We have an album of spoken word and psychoambient music, where I also read Henry Miller, Jean Reschi, David Wojnarowicz, and my own stuff. And it just to, which gives kind of a portrait of New York through, we'll say from the fifties forward. Oh, amazing! And then I have an album, a, a um, jazz noir album with this incredible chanteuse Sylvia Black, which is like a, you know Henry Mancini soundtrack, which is very I call it, let's call it sexual forensics. So it's between <laughs> it's a great description, very jazzy, and she's an amazing uh, composer, bass player, chanteuse. So it goes between duolette songs of a very Mancini-esque thing to like a forensic ambient spoken word thing, but all on this kind of forensic, murderous, sexual uh, vibe. I mean, we're it, it, we're waiting to release it, but I, I don't know exactly when. We have to find the right... I mean, at this point, look, you know, I release some things at the merchandise table only, but with this project with Sylvia Black, I feel if we, we have to have somebody that can help promoted or it's just ridiculous it's just another grand work of genius thrown to the wind i say with a great amount of sarcasm (laughs) 
Do you ever worry about that though? About releasing too much stuff and going, I should give people a chance to breathe. Well, I don't really look. What was the last thing I released that anybody could get? Not really. I mean, that's why I had a like band camp. If you can go there and listen to it, you want it, you can give me a couple of bucks. You don't, I don't give a shit. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Release. I haven't had an actual record label release. Well, I have an Italian label that's reissuing some of the early stuff on vinyl, which is great. Okay. But I haven't had an actual, you know, record label that I worked with since I did work with Cypress Grove about eight years or more ago. So I don't think I'm releasing too much material. You don't have to buy it. You don't have to listen to it. Do I? <laughs> no, I agree. I, I love the way you release stuff. You know what I mean? It's like, well, I'm going to stop. This is why I'm, I have never been with a major record label because they would have told me, oh, you can't get younger. You have to play the same album for three or four or five years. Before. Well, shut up. I ain't going there. Yeah. it's It just stifles creativity, that kind of. It's bullshit. Yeah, I agree. Um, you mentioned before when you were talking about Thurston that you've just never lost your enthusiasm for it, which is great. Do you think that is why you, or rather, do you think that's a testament to the fact that you do such a wide variety of stuff? You mentioned you're doing a jazz album, you're doing spoken word. You're doing- well, for, well, let me, let me start up sideways. I have to know what I don't like what's out there, so then I have to find the things that I do like that are out there as well. But right. I just want to keep my ears open. I'm not closed to what's going on. You know, I have to go on Louder Than War. I have to go on Pitchfork. I have to go on Dangerous Minds. I have to research these things and thinking that even if it's not exactly for me, there's hope that there's something out there, whether it's from the past that's just coming out now or that's absolutely new, but not even necessarily something I listen to, but still have to say I'm glad that exists. But it's just, you know, I, don't, I don't know how I keep my uh, my jolly nature up, Mr. Jolly. <laughs> Just part of you. I don't know. I don't know. You know, I once had a boyfriend whose name was Jolly. Oh, really? I could have another one. You never know. <laughs> um, You're a little old for me, but that's all right. I'll forgive you for that. I am a little old for you. I'm sorry. Yeah, well. I'm trying to age I'm backwards. older than you'll ever be, but that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> quite, quite possibly. Um, final question. Do you have a favorite of your albums, the one that you went, I got this the most right at this time? No, no, because to me, they all make linear sense because they are a hysterical, historical overview of my philosophical, (laughs) physical and emotional preoccupations at the time. So I think anybody who's coming into it anew should listen to it in chronological order. Good luck. That is great advice. I don't know how much time you have left in your life, but... I mean, I just, I can't say, I think that they're all great because I was fortunate enough to be conscious enough to choose the right collaborators for the concept I wanted to express. That, and then therein lies my genius is I have a concept of like, okay, well, I somehow just always chose the right people and they agreed. Very fortunate. Oh, you make it sound very easy. It's easy for me. And that was Lydia Lunch. She is touring Australia with Joseph Keckler on the Tales of Lust and Madness tour that starts March 7th in Brisbane at the Powerhouse. She's playing two shows there. That's lydia-lunch.net forward slash shows if you want tickets and to check out the tour date. She's going all around Australia. And you should also check out her film, The War Is Never Over, which I'm sure is streaming somewhere in the world and I'm sure you can find out. And if you've never heard Death Valley 69 by Lydia and Sonic Youth, put on some headphones and enjoy. My guest next week is Graham Nash of The Hollies and also of Crosby Stills, Him and Young. Until then, 